0: I think the simplest thing to do, regardless of your access to resources, is to just start small. So just create place and time to come together and allow groups, whether it be students or whether it be innovators or whether it be in corporate teams, to come up with ideas and form, to form loose teams around them.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the PASS Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So in today's episode of Learning Unboxed, we are going to be continuing our three-part conversation about digital transformation. And today we're going to focus on growing startups and fostering entrepreneurship as a component of transformation. And I'm really, really excited to have joining me today two wonderful guests, uh, Christy Campbell and Jasmine Degaya are with us. And just a brief um, background. So Christy Campbell leads the operations for Rev1 Ventures, the investor startup studio providing strategic services and capital to help startups scale and corporates innovate. So welcome, Christy, to the program. Thank you for having me, Annalise. And joining Christy is a Jasmine Dagaia, um, who is currently the Executive Director of Transformation at JPMorgan Chase & Company. And Jasmine has over 20 years of experience in building and leading innovative digital and agile organizations. And as our listeners will recall, Jasmine has joined us on the previous two uh, components of this series. And so, Jasmine, welcome back.
2: Thanks, Annalise. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So I'm really excited today because this component of the series that we're talking about, I think really is going to resonate a lot with our educators as we think about the current educational system still having those very clear distinctions between business and technology disciplines. And Jasmine and I've had this conversation each time sort of around thinking about how could we help education, think about essentially de-siloing a lot of the work that's happening and understanding and embracing technology and innovation as a transformative endeavor um, in lots of the work that we do. And as Jasmine um, had mentioned at one time, there is real magic in the innovation and transformation space. And when we take down the walls and the silos and we can think about bringing together, in the case of industry, customer needs, engineering solutions to solve those needs, that suddenly business expertise is turned all of these ideas into realities that we can practically see. And I think that's the real um, magic in this, is the notion that we're talking about hands-on components of actionable um, pieces that are easy to learn and sort of experience. And so Jasmine, I would really love for you to set the stage for us today uh, once again and help us sort of understand why you feel like the ideas around startup and entrepreneurship in particular, are so important in the work that you've been doing um, over the last twenty years.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, if you think about traditional product development processes, they are they can tend to be very be very sequential in nature. So, you have ideation, maybe creation of an idea, product um, requirements design, then you have all those intermediate steps of budgeting and resourcing and demand Mm -hmm. management before you often get to actual development, testing, launch. And what tends to happen is even in an agile environment where you're trying to break that down, because of the, the fact that this is a sequential process, you have a lot of friction in the system. And so at each Each stage, you have this handoff, this things that get lost in translation, and you have a reduction in speed because you you have to go through all of these steps. And so, um, as I'm sure Christy will attest to, when in in a startup environment, part of the real magic there is you break down those silos and you just bring the people together who are working on the same problem, get people together in a room and eliminate that sequential a handoff and the friction in that process so that you can really start to create that magic and become much more nimble in your implementation of, of taking something from an idea to a reality and something you can put in a customers' hands.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so part of that is the is really, really embracing a collaborative opportunity in ways that maybe we don't necessarily think about. So Christy, let's dive at, into that just a little bit and, and sort of set the stage um, by giving us sort of the 50,000 foot view of sort of the way that you help foster these ideas that Jasmine was talking about within your role at Rev1 Ventures. And so for our listeners who are not from, from this area, have no idea what Rev1 is. So start with sort of setting the stage with that, but then just sort of help us understand why what Jasmine's talking about is important to the work that you do.
0: Sure. Well, yeah, I'll start back with really just why Rev1 was created, because I think it's a really important foundation for this conversation. So uh, back in around the 2012 uh, timeline, uh, key leaders in our, our community in the Columbus region got together and said, hey, we know we have all of the, the key ingredients here to really foster a very strong and growing uh, tech enabled startup community. But we need to really bring those resources together more clearly. And so, That's really why our CEO was recruited here to Columbus and why Rev1 was formed. So it was built for and by the community to help entrepreneurs build the foundations of successful companies. And that's really the key to it there is is bringing those resources that consist of very strategic Mm -hmm. services, mentorship, advisory, access to talent, access to space, and our innovation center that's just just Mm -hmm. right next to the PASS Foundation, but also, and just as importantly, bringing critical capital at the earliest right. stages from concept and pre-seed all the way through Seed, seed and Seed Plus um, to really provide both the services and capital that entrepreneurs need to succeed.
1: And so then as you think about, Christy, that, that, that sort of foundational space for Rev. and then how you translate that back into um, sort of the startup mentality as it, as it relates to going from startup to actual Implementation and scale because we talk about startup all the time in our work with K-12. And we use it, we stand the entire sort of startup endeavor. You know, we we talk about and stand that up, if you will, as an element of the way you could utilize the skill set that's necessary to be successful in that type of environment as a mechanism for transformative change in the classroom. So, um, share with us just a little bit, if you will, Christy, sort of about the the sort of mentality that's necessary, I think, to really thrive in that environment. Because that gets, and we're going to come full circle in a second. I'm going to bring it back to Jasmine, or from that talent pipeline sort of sort of perspective.
0: Yeah, well, no, that's that's a really good transition because when you think about ultimately what makes an entrepreneur successful, I think that. You know the research and the jury are still out on the nature versus nurture. I think when you read and and really follow that industry, it's really a combination of both, right? It's the 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 nature which is being open and collaborative and being very focused on new ideas and having the ability to take those forward. And it's also just the nurture of having resources and support to bring that forward. Many entrepreneurs and innovators had entrepreneurs and innovators in their family. And so, mm-hmm. I think to your point, how can we foster that maybe for folks who don't have that? And so one of the key key learnings or key programs that we bring to entrepreneurs from the earliest stage, regardless of where they are in their journey, is thinking about ultimately what you're solving for. And that can be right. used across any um, across any area of your life. And for us, it starts with understanding your customer, your customer's needs, your customer's journey, and really what your product is solving for. Because I think sometimes innovators and entrepreneurs, regardless of their age and stage in life, tend to get so wrapped up in the idea that they may lose sight of, well, what ultimately is my customer hiring my product Mm -hmm. to do? And how does that stand in the market based on other things that they may be using to leverage that? So that really early understanding of what your product is being used for and how how your customer gets value and joy out of that is a a really fundamental aspect of, of teaching entrepreneurship at the earliest stages.
1: Right, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that people either don't understand or if they think they understand it, they lose sight of the intricacies of... The, the failure process. One of my favorite interviews that I've done on this program actually was with an entrepreneur who said, who said something that still resonates with me. And I think about it frequently. And, and when I'm sitting down and, and we're doing work specifically with schools, I, I reflect on his comment about the fact that K-12 doesn't spend enough time allowing students to fail. And to fail in a supported environment, because the difference between entrepreneurship and startup and the and the traditional K twelve sort of space often is the fact that, you know, in uh, you know in startup and entrepreneurship, you know, as you're sort of thinking through, essentially what you learn from something failing is going to be as critical, if not more critical, than the success that you might have. And so often in that rapid prototyping sort of scenario, what what he was talking about was the fact that, hey, it's okay for me to just have earned, if you will, to put it into sort of a a grade level sort of understanding a C because, you know, I don't need to go any further than the C, whatever it was I was trying because I learned so much from that and I'm now ready to iterate and, and move on to the next component of this. I don't have to spend any more time trying to earn, an A on the component of something that I'm not going to build on. And so Jasmine, as you sort of think about the work that you've been doing over these last 20 years, you've got all these amazingly innovative teams. And yet I assume in your role leading in innovation, you have to sometimes foster or Teach some of this skill. So how do you how do you reconcile some of those types of disconnects? And we certainly see it in the work that's happening in the classroom, you know. And and how do you how do you help the individual on your team? And then
2: how can then we help then translate
1: that back down that pipeline, if you will?
2: Yeah, it's a really terrific question. And one of the things that we we try really hard to do, and it's it's difficult because we're not wired that way, which mm-hmm. brings it back full circle to what can you do to help you know kids in their learning process to to build that mentality is to really foster a, a sense of test and learn mm-hmm. and to iterate. And that something doesn't have to be perfect on day one when you put it into production. And I think for, you know, for all of us, we want it to be perfect on day one. And this creates this culture of it's my baby and I don't want to take it back and make an enhancement or fix a bug because it's okay. And maybe, you know, it'll be okay. And so one of the things that, that we often try to do to help change that mentality is to help folks think about We don't expect it to be perfect on the first iteration. And if you put that out there as a baseline expectation, it shifts your perception of I'm going to do everything to make this perfect and I'm not going to want to correct any mistakes to no one's expecting it to be perfect. It's okay if it has mistakes. And maybe we design to make that a more accommodating scenario. So you put your functionality in with a switch. And so you tell people, even if the code looks good, we're still going to leave it on the off position until we give it some time to just kind of Bake and settle in, and then we can we can always turn it back on and off. It gives people this mentality of flexibility that we're putting things in to test and to learn and to iterate. And your baseline expectation is not that it's going to be perfect in that first implementation. And so to your to your earlier point, I think that's a terrific perspective for educators and students to take back in that in that mentality of how you think about what you deliver. And does it have to be perfect on day one or does it have to be a really good first start? And then you're going to keep building on it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think that the other piece of that is helping helping the students and community and then ultimately the industry partners as we're seeing these these really rapid shifts in the way the business and industry world relates to K-12 in ways that we haven't, you know, sort of seen um, historically, I think there's going to be many, many, many more opportunities for both of those industries to spend enough time with each other to sort of see how they're absorbing, you know, a a number of these different internal process pieces and hopefully influencing them. You know, on the business and industry side, what you want to see is more openness to taking on young, interns um, as an opportunity to learn from them they're unfiltered right um, and that's the other reason that I think that startup and entrepreneurship fit so well in k-12 and in particular um, in a lot of the innovative high school opportunities because you know our our, our young thinkers, are so unfettered in many ways. They don't know why something either can't work or shouldn't work. I always use the example you know, with, uh, with uh, um, our kiddos at the innovation lab that I would put them up against any R&D team in the world. And one of the reasons is because they have limit, um, unlimited um, sense of possibilities. Because, for example, they don't understand that the physics of what they're talking about is it's not even possible, right? But they're still going to imagine it. And Christy, I would assume that that type of thinking, uh, you know, translates into folks in startup and entrepreneurship as it relates to the folks that, that, that show up in the work that you do that are sort of on that precipice of, you know, to your point, they need resources, but the ideas and the processes are strong enough that they have the potential to progress. And so I want to dig into that just a little bit. When, what does that take? I mean, how do you know? How do you know when someone walks into your office or they walk into Revlon and say, you know, here's who we are and here's what we do? How do you make the decisions around what you select to invest in? Because I think that would be very telling. Now, that, that's a really good question. And, and and just related
0: to your conversation on the, the failure mentality, that's really one of the key components that we want to make sure that we see in the entrepreneurs that we first speak with is that they understand that instead of baking something out to full perfection before it goes out to market, which may have meant your life savings or someone <laughs> else's money that supported you, to really look at what are the key things that you're solving for upfront, What are the first things you can get out there and how can you iterate on that? So that's really critical. But so uh, we talk to over a thousand entrepreneurs each year that we either meet in the community or through partners or just come to our website. And really the first step is just to listen to what they're working on, why they're working on it, um, trying to get an indication of their passion for the problem they're solving, right? Because there's a big difference between I really have this big problem that I've seen in my life or I've seen in the industry um, that I've worked in and I really want to solve this in a unique way versus, hey, I'm just trying to figure out what's going to stick on the wall and, and provide me something to work on. And those are two very different opposite ends of the spectrum. And so for us, the the really the key thing is do, does the entrepreneur or the inventor uh, have a critical understanding of what they're solving for and what their customers' needs are? Um, the secondary to that, uh, which comes more from ongoing conversations, is really around how how um, intellectually honest or how coachable is the mm-hmm. entrepreneur or innovator because... I think, you know, we've all seen in our careers that successful companies and businesses and teams were not built by one person alone. They need to have collaborators. They need to have mentors, advisors, folks who can help fill the gap. And so we start with that, that really early indication of customer validation. And then we move into uh, wrapping that around with better understanding of, you know, the entrepreneur themselves and how they can scale. A really important component to our program in identifying who we who we add as clients and who we agree to work together is a program that we launched in 2014, and it's solely focused on that early product market validation. So the number one reason that tech enabled startups fail is because their customer did not ultimately want what they created. So they went ahead and built it anyway, (laughs) put it out in the market. There was no customer adoption. There was not enough revenue to build the company and they were unsuccessful. And so if we can help an entrepreneur or inventor solve for that before they build the product, then imagine how much more quickly they can get a product into the market. So our program is called Customer Learning Lab. It's basically a three-day, very intensive boot camp that happens over the course of two weeks. And it basically just guides the entrepreneur to help very clearly identify who their customer is, what are the key features of that product. So So when Jasmine does that work around Mm -hmm. product development, it all has to boil down to sort of what are the next key things that your customer has to have to to build an engagement with this product, identifying what those are and making sure that that target customer would be willing to pay for those. So we actually not only help help the entrepreneur to identify what those are, but then to go out into the market and survey. So to get real data to back Mm -hmm. that up Mm -hmm. so that they can go beyond just, Hey, I think it's a great idea or my family thinks it's a great idea or my friends think it's a great idea uh, to get to the point where their customers think it's a great idea and that they would be willing to pay for it. And that is just a repeatable learning that you can use at any point in your entrepreneurial journey, whether you're now in a large growing company and you're trying to identify what next product do I bring to market or even what next feature do I prioritize in my development roadmap so that that... product market validation is critical for us. And so for the entrepreneurs and about 125 uh, entrepreneurial ideals will come through Customer Learning Lab each year, about a third of them get directionally positive data Mm -hmm. that says, hey, there's interest here. And with that, we see that as enough to help decide to make that partnership to move forward. And now to my earlier point, if the data is really good, but it's clear that the entrepreneur just sort of has in their head a very uh, specific path and is not sort of open to changes in the shifts in the data as it comes along the way, that's a little bit more difficult conversation. But Mm -hmm. we really try to start with the market and the data and which for us has also brought a really interesting side effect that is important for us. And that is really reducing bias Mm -hmm. on our team. So it really doesn't matter anymore whether uh, someone shows up and, and talks about their product. If I think it's a bad idea, it doesn't matter, right? Well, it only matters if the customer thinks it's a bad idea. And we've had many cases of this where we've either fallen in love, in love with an idea and we've said, oh my gosh, that's gonna, that's got some legs. Or the opposite where many of us were like, that is just not that interesting. But then the data proved us wrong. So having that really early uh, feedback and iteration cycle Mm -hmm. is something that's really important for entrepreneurs and something that I think we can teach the next generation uh, as far as how they go about their lives, whether it be entrepreneurial endeavors or whether it be working in bigger businesses.
1: So the power of research, I love that. That's wonderful, and that is one of those foundational things, right? That we we try really, really hard to to teach kids that you know information is 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 very, very powerful. It can sway in so many different ways. So, so that's really awesome. So, Jasmine, I want to sort of um, dig into a little bit of one of the things that Christy was talking about, and and really sort of get to an understanding of how do you ultimately within your your sort of industry role um, make the decisions about sort of what that next innovation is. I'm really curious about that because there's, I'm sure, all these amazing ideas and you're, you're really focused on the needs of your customers in, in your role uh, most recently. But how do, I mean, there's gotta be so many ideas even within your own innovation group I mean, how do you filter through them and say we're going to invest time, energy, and effort here, but not over
2: here? How, how do you how do you make those decisions? Always oh, a hard call. <laughs> prioritization is the is the most pivotal point, I would say, in the entire process because you need to be making the right call at the right time, so you don't go too far down a path mm-hmm. of something that isn't. Isn't the right place to invest your your really precious technology and resourcing dollars. So, um, for us, a lot of times that's driven by you know the overall organizational goals. Is it to, and where um, an organization may be at a particular point in its journey, its maturity, its its own life cycle. So, are you at a point where um, you're really focused on growing market share, and in which case you're gonna you're gonna lean towards all of the functionality that's gonna help drive customer adoption and um, usability and convenience and um, all the things that you want to in, Enhance the experience for the customer, or are you at a point in your life cycle where you have a really solid product? Now you want to focus a little more internally. How can I drive um, efficiency gains and operational enhancements, and perhaps change our processes? And there can be a lot of innovation in those internal processes and approaches, and how you use automation and machine learning and big data to, you know, as innovation tools as well to change um, and and still enhance the organization's overall effectiveness. So um, every day, that making that prioritization call is really key. And and it happens at multiple points within the process. Um, At the macro level, aligning to the organization's goals. Mm -hmm. And then at the micro level, as you look at the specific functionality and features that you're going to develop in every specific release or iteration um, that that you're putting out there. So, um, But I think that that discipline and that um, rigor around the prioritization process is really Mm -hmm. key. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I
1: assume gets into really sort of, you know, foundational problem solving and decision-making skills that are absolutely critical for long-term success. So Christy, if you sort of step back from all of this and sort of think about that, if you had the opportunity to really influence sort of the the, the thinking that was coming out of a K-12 experience and, and I've asked Jasmine this question around about several ways on some of the others. So I want to toss it over, over to you this time, you know, as we sort of think about, you know, what would those influence points B. I mean, I guess, you know, the sort of 50,000 foot um, version of my question is, you know, if all things were equal and you were to, to reach into, you know, somebody just getting ready to leave their high school experience and they, they wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, you know, aside from having great ideas and, and you know, being um, a bit on the fearless side, I suspect, what are the other key components that you, you feel like would be a necessary sort of um, element to move forward? And I'm asking the question because this, teachers in schools, they're always asking us um, repeatedly, okay, well, you know, we, we really need industry to help us understand what it is that we're preparing kids for. And it's a really, really tough question. You know, the, this particular series we've talked repeatedly about the fact the rate and pace of technology and how that's influenced innovation, it's really, really difficult to keep up. And in K-12, when you're trying to get so many foundational components taken care of, how do you add that into the work that you're doing from a preparation state and feel like you're not missing key foundational elements that you just feel compelled to make sure your students have? And I would argue you could do both, but where do you see the value um, in the sort of do both approach?
0: Well, it's a really good question. And I think we could talk for hours about how we influence <laughs> creating the next generation of entrepreneurs and innovators coming from K through 12. But, you know, I personally think it's in a couple of areas and think about this a lot as we we have our own internship program and mm-hmm. we've got we've got quite a few pipeline building programs with our partners, including OSU. But um I think one of the things that has is helpful and you see a lot of institutions providing this now are experiential learning opportunities. Mm-hmm. So ways to move beyond just talking about industry and case studies of industry and case studies of companies and really letting students with all varies of interest get their hands on, well, what does that look like in real life? Because I think in my mind, gone are the days that we have to decide at the end of our high school career what we want to do for the rest of our mm-hmm. lives, right? Hopefully we will get a, get to a point very quickly where we will really enable career paths to look like we know our lives look, which is you end up moving across different industries. You end up doing two, three, four different types of things that may be unrelated completely throughout your career. So how do we enable students to get access to those opportunities early? And I think it it needs to even go beyond what we've been traditionally calling STEM, Right. right? I feel like there still ends up being some categorization or, or focus that kids are either STEM savvy or they're not. And I even see that when I look at my own children, I have, you know, I have a son who's very focused on having sort of a natural understanding of technology and math. And and then I have a a daughter who's actually very uh, focused on visuals and arts and, Mm -hmm. and those come together in very unique ways, but I wouldn't say that either of them is, is, you know, has more of an ability or less, than the other to be successful in innovation or entrepreneurship. And so I think the experiential piece is key. The other piece is really helping students to understand early on what their common traits are. And I I have actually had the privilege of having a a leadership coach over the last year, he calls them factory settings. Mm-hmm. And it's really like, <laughs> what are the ways in which you work? And I don't mean just in a career, but in which you mm-hmm. work daily, whether it's mm-hmm. doing your homework, whether it's doing tours around the household, understanding who you are and how you approach the world and your work will help you to understand what's going to make you happy. Because ultimately it's very difficult for certain uh, folks in certain working styles or operating styles to go outside of that for long periods of time. And so having an understanding of that early on will help you to think about, well, what are the industries? What are the roles? What are the different career paths for things that really play up my my strengths versus that are sort of relying upon my weaknesses? I think think having a a more regular way to identify Mm -hmm. that early on will help Mm -hmm. kids to figure out their career path. So those are kind of high level, but there are a couple of things that I really think about when I think about my own children and the next generation of of entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, and I think that all of those points actually are... Are absolutely necessary. And we certainly see that at the Innovation Lab in terms of the, the sort of freedom that you give kids to explore and the assumption that every kid, no matter what their strengths are, right, are capable of solving the world's greatest problems. Right. They we may have to give them all kinds of supports around them to be able to do that. But intrinsically, um, that if we believe that they that every kid is is capable of that. It's a game changer. And part of it, it's a game changer because they feel fearless and the support that's around them. But also, I think the other piece that um, you tapped into is they had the chance to explore, right? And so they had the chance to really just dig in and find out what this thing is, you know, and, and I want to circle back around with that. I always like to close the program by thinking about um, the fact that I've got a listener in some part of the world that doesn't have the resources. They don't They don't have have, have Jasmine and all of the, the great work in innovation and technology sitting there to, to go tap into where they don't have have christy and you know and a sort of a rev one sort of approach to say hey could you help me figure out how to do startup and entrepreneurship in my classroom but you know what are the things that you feel um that 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 people without that type of local resource, or if they haven't found it, or maybe they haven't even known how to go look for it, because the flip side of that is that, you know, every community does in fact have resources, but often we don't know how to tap into them. Mm-hmm. So so Jasmine, you know, thinking about closing these sort of three part series and the conversations that we've been able to have. Where do you think the greatest value add is for somebody just trying to start out to influence their students, this next generation of folks that are going to show up in industry uh, to be really successful in an innovative environment
2: so it's it's a good question. I know uh, for good reason we've we've talked about this mm-hmm. um, in our in our other discussions as well. I think really just helping to set that set that mindset of of growth, right? So that it's okay to explore, it's okay to try new things and it's important to be multidisciplinary. So don't get hung up on a single path and this is the only thing that I am and this is how I'm defined, but rather how do you make yourself more broad? And we often refer to this as kind of a a Mm T-shaped individual. So you might go deep in in having a certain set of skills that you're really strong at, but how do you also go horizontal and have other things that you can dabble in? And I think particularly in an innovation and entrepreneurial space, this becomes increasingly important to have not only technical skills, but also skills in marketing, sales, um, Mm -hmm. you know, being able to connect with others or regulatory, audit, finance, you know, compliance, other other skill sets as well. So you can be really um, multidimensional in your in your approach. And I think that also makes you incredibly more interesting and valuable to employers or to receiving venture capital funding Mm -hmm. or, you know, any other direction you might want to go in. It will, um, it'll really help individuals that way. So I think that's, that's a key piece. The other piece I would say that um, is really important is just keeping a very open, mentality in terms of being very inviting and inclusive of bringing people whom you may not have otherwise brought to the table, but by making a seat for those other partners at the table, it will help create that magic of generating new ideas and um, being able to kind of think outside the box a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I love that. Making a seat at the table. That's a really, really wonderful way to sort of think about that. Um, so I appreciate that very much. So Christy, same question to you. Um, you know, if you were uh, to provide some advice to folks from afar, how do I get started with taking the ideals that I've, I've heard in this episode today and put them into practice, either in my own community or in my own classroom or certainly to be fostering that next generation of innovative thinkers? What would that message be?
0: I think the simplest thing to do regardless of your access to resources to just start small. So right. just create place and time to come together and allow groups, whether it be students or whether it be innovators or whether it be in corporate teams to come up with ideas and form, to form loose teams around them. Because, you know, as I was talking about earlier, everyone has a place in innovation and it may not be the obvious place, which mm-hmm. I think we as a you know, as a world, we tend to lift up the idea person, right? So I've been working in uh, startups my entire career and I have never been the idea person. I've never (laughs) been the person that came up with the idea. I'm always the one helping to really bring the uh, inventor's ideas to life. And how do you really execute on that and prioritize and operationalize it? So Just coming up with really lightweight ways to do like startup weekend
2: or Mm -hmm. a
0: startup day or an idea day where you let teams loosely form on their own. And naturally they will bring together different skill sets and they'll come up with ideas. They'll be able to present that and they'll be able to see um, how they can iterate on that and present that to the rest of the group. And then the group can provide their feedback. So there are much more formal ways to organize Mm -hmm. that, but it's it's a it's really a framework that is used you know, throughout uh, our world and how to really bring ideas to light. So that's one way to get started.
1: Yes, I appreciate that very much. And we, we um, advocate for that frequently um, at PAST. You know, we, we, we will often talk about the fact that, hey, you know, let's do, you know, a, a startup weekend, a startup day, a startup whatever, right? Um, because it does sort of give this freedom around the notion of how one is collaborative and ideas get started and generated and all that work. And, and oftentimes what what our schools um, or our partners will tell us is that was a freeing experience right? A freeing experience. And so there's a lot of value in that. Absolutely. Well, ladies, I want to thank you both very much for taking time out of your day and sharing in the conversation with us. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you you for joining us for learning unboxed conversation about teaching learning and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin, And join me next time as we stand up, step back and lean in to reimagine education.